This is uh, my lecture on the Industrial Revolution. And we're going to start off with a guiding and central question. And it's one that you're considering in this symposium uh, that you're going to start working on uh, right away, and which will be your last in European history. And the question is, was the Industrial Revolution harmful or beneficial? In the short term, in the long term, however it is you choose to look at it, it's an extremely complex question. And to complement this, we have a blog topic up now which starts with my verbal uh, instructions, which may take a minute to load. I think you have to leave it sit for a minute or two to load um, before you can actually hear the question. And we'll be able to actually start talking about this well in advance of our discussion. Okay, So two images. On the left-hand side, obviously the harm of the Industrial Revolution, what it brought was unprecedented um, impact on the environment. Um, and that impact was uh, in large part negative. Uh, it brought pollution. It brought alterations in the environment uh, that weren't necessarily good for mankind, um, reflected in this image of a uh, refinery, an oil and gas refinery that's uh, cranking out uh, pollutants into the air. On the other hand, it also brought an unprecedented opportunity for people to go upwards in space and to increase the density of, of the living area that they were in by going upwards. And this is the modern skyscraper, which is a result of the Industrial Revolution with its glass and its wonderful views and its air-conditioned offices and uh, its ability to interconnect and network with people who are only just a few feet away from you rather than 100 miles away from you as it was prior to the Industrial Revolution. And the productivity of this building is immense when you think about it. I mean, walk downtown sometime. Go down Merchant Street, go down Bishop Street or Alakea and look up at the First Hawaiian Bank building or look up at the Bank of Hawaii building or uh, the Pacific Century building, what you're seeing are monuments to productivity because they're filled with thousands of people who are just doing things. They're making things, they're providing services that make your life easier, they're writing insurance policies that cover you if your car crashes or if one of your relative dies or if, if your home is damaged in some way. I mean, every possible service, every possible kind of product is being designed and or manufactured and or insured and or serviced in some way out of those buildings. I mean, it's hard to argue that in some ways there's a tremendous benefit that comes to mankind. For us, the copy machine up in the teacher's workroom, it goes down every once in a while. Simple phone call, boom, there's a guy there with a belt and he's got all these tools and a briefcase and in 10 minutes he's got that thing working again and it spits out thousands of copies. It's a miracle, that machine. It really is. So that's the question that we start off with here, okay? Okay, boom. There's one of those effects. You can see I like the confetti effect. Boom. All right, so off we go. I, I, I really like those. Whoa, did you see that? That's very cool effect and, of course, appropriate to the Industrial Revolution because it's a camera lens that opens and closes. Okay, here's your first image. We're in a giant document-based question, and here's your first document. We describe what we're looking at here are people lined up in rows, 
and it looks eerily familiar to what we saw in manufactured landscapes, except that manufactured landscapes was on a much grander scale, much more giant. Here it's a little bit smaller. This is a textile factory. You can see the rolls of textiles right here. These are, that's um, thread that's spun onto, uh, onto these uh, spindles. And then ultimately all of this ends up into a piece of cloth that makes you feel comfortable right here. This little sweatshirt that's keeping you all nice and warm starts off right here. You see people lined up in rows. And once you've described it, you begin to draw inferences about the Industrial Revolution, about the working conditions. What were their working conditions like? What does it look like to you? Do they look like they're comfortable working? Uh, what are all the possible interpretations of this scene? And we start with this because the factory, the factory is the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And we have to come to understand the factory if we're going to really have an intelligent discussion about the Industrial Revolution and its benefits and or its downsides. Okay, so we're going to look at this concept of the factory really carefully and James Burke is going to take you through that visually tomorrow with some really awesome uh, scenes that reconstruct uh, the way that factories were developed and how they tended to speed up production over time. Okay. All right, so prelude to the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1700s in Europe, as you know, things had been in some amount of turmoil, not the least of which was the French Revolution. And the prelude to the French Revolution was economic instability and also environmental instability, as in famines, as in loss of crops, as in hunger, as in loss of bread, and so on and so forth. Okay? Economic and or environmental instability. And so once we get the certain things under control, such as the control of disease, and you recall that it was the rat carrying the flea which carried uh, the, the, the plague and other diseases. Once we got that under control, which was a sanitation problem, and once we solved the problem of, um, of how to cope with weather vis-a-vis -vis, uh, growing agricultural products that would lead to food, once we solved these problems, we see a population explosion. I think it's one of the most basic things that you pull out of the social studies is that when there is food, you see populations rising. Where there is a lack of food and other associated problems, you tend to see problems with populations and, and or steep drops in some cases like w with what happened with the plague and what happened prior to the French Revolution. So the prelude to the Industrial Revolution is that you need a rise in population. Why? Because in order for there to be an Industrial Revolution, you need labor. You need people to be able to work. And they're going to work in these new factories, which is a concept that's going to emerge on Europeans with incredible speed, and they're going to have to cope with it. And they're going to become the units of labor within these factories, and you saw that in the film clip that we watched the other day. And there's going to be much to say about this, okay? So a population explosion is necessary in order to provide units of work. Okay, so there are other reasons for population growth. Um, advances in medicine. So we start to see certain kinds of technologies come on board, especially in the realm of medicine. Uh, although this looks like a snake, it's not. It's a hand, and the hand has a smallpox pustule on it. 
Um, smallpox was the great killer of mankind, and it was eradicated completely, which is really an amazing thing. I mean, you only see s uh, very isolated cases of it now, but for the most part, it has been wiped out through this concept of the inoculation. The inoculation is, the idea simply is, is that you put smallpox under your skin and cause your body to react to it. Hopefully, it doesn't kill you. What your body is supposed to do is to suddenly throw antibodies at it, and that process of throwing the antibodies at this injected bit of smallpox is supposed to condition your body to do the same thing the next time you get smallpox. That's the idea of an inoculation. Hey, I remember this like it was yesterday. What felt like 10,000 screaming fifth graders at Ben Parker Elementary in Kaneohe trotted across the street to the Department of Health offices all to get this, this smallpox inoculation that came from a gun that looked like it was a shotgun, you know? Little kid like this, like, and this big giant woman with this big gun, you know, step up, ah, wham, in your, and I still have this bump up here. Everybody of my age and before still has the little smallpox bump where we got hit with that thing and it raised the lump and then the whole thing. I could have died in that moment. Not from the gun, but from the fact that they were sticking smallpox in me. You know, when you get the flu shot, there's always that chance it might actually give you the flu, which can kill you, right? Anyway, the whole idea of the inoculation is a pretty amazing concept because imagine the pioneers on the front end of this thing. Imagine the people who actually said, okay, I really want my children to live. So go ahead, cut my skin and put a little bit of smallpox stuff in it. Right? And if you ever see this series that won all those uh, Emmys or whatever, Golden Globes, called John Adams on HBO, there's a tremendous moment in there when John Adams, our second president, his wife, Abigail Adams, while he's away, actually inoculates her kids for smallpox. She has a doctor come, he cuts their skin and puts the, the actual pustule material into there. It's unbelievable what a courageous moment that is, and her children actually survive. Okay? Anyway, long story short, advances in medicine ultimately lead to, and improvements in sanitation lead to a population spike. Why? Because babies start to live longer and humans start to live longer. Babies actually live and humans start to live longer. Okay? So all of this put together, along with other revolutions that are coming along in terms of transportation and energy and all of that, are going to lead to what's called the uh, Industrial Revolution. Okay. Now, there's another factor that leads to the Industrial Revolution, and that's called the enclosure movement. So all across England, and this was also happening elsewhere in Europe, the typical way of, of living for your average peasant was that he had his little farm, he had his little, as they say in Hawaii, his kuleana, his area of responsibility, but there was also a commons so I would take my cows out to graze in the hillside and Caroline would bring her cows out to graze and Sam would bring her cows out to graze and Elise would bring her sheep out to graze and so on. They would all graze happily on this hillside that was maybe 100 acres or something like that. But in the beginning of the enclosure movement, the, the landowners began to see that if you parceled up land into little units and got people focusing on the production of that particular little unit, you could make the land twice, three times, four times as productive. You just had to divide it up. What's the technology that divides it up? Fencing. 
fencing is one of those leaps forward in technology that begins to create the concept of private property. And then along comes John Locke, who we talked about yesterday, who makes private property almost something sacred. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. By the way, we change that to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson wasn't comfortable with the idea of property, so he changed it to happiness. But John Locke wrote it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And so the pursuit of property becomes the individual units, which are then fenced off. Well, what happens to all the people that used to graze in the commons? They get shoved off. And then eventually they get pushed so far off that they end up in the cities. They get pushed off the land. And they become the units of labor working in these factories. So you see another factor underway that explains how the Industrial Revolution comes about because the Industrial Revolution can't come into existence without labor, units of labor. So these factors are working hand in hand. Okay? Garrett Hardin wrote a book called The Tragedy of the Commons in which he said that this was one of the great tragic moments in human history when people began to get shoved off the common lands. So here you have, you guys know Mr. Gilmar, right? Or at least you're familiar with who he was. He retired probably before you came up. Mr. Gilmar spends most of his retired life now protecting Kapilani Park from being carved up into little units of commercial production. He's on the front lines of that. He's even fighting the art on the fence of the zoo thing over there because he feels that that's a commercialization of a public place. He doesn't want any private enterprise to happen anywhere in the park. He's opposed to Sunset on the Beach. He's opposed to all the, he's opposed to the marathon, all those things. It's an open public park for everybody. And he's attempting to reverse what he thinks is the tragedy of the commons, that we lost something very special. Okay? All right. Then, as I said about these two chapters that you're reading, it's mostly about things. It doesn't get too much more abstract than that unless you get into the section on the romantic painters and then it gets um, a little more philosophical. But here it's really just about things. So what do we do, what do we need to do? What are, what are the problems and solutions? So what's the problem? We need better agriculture because better agriculture feeds people and if people reproduce, they produce units of labor like little Crabtree who at eight years old will go into a factory and work 16 hours a day. So we crank out a little more units like little Crabtree. But in order to do that, we have to be healthy. And in order to be healthy, we have to have food. In order to have food, you need machines that are going to produce food at a higher rate. Problem, solution. That's what this whole thing is going to be about. Problems, solutions. Okay? Here's the first solution to the problem, the threshing machine. So you remember from the return of Martin Gare? Try to look up for a sec. Remember they're all out in the fields going like this with their sickles? Whoosh. And I made that crabby remark about, nah, you should go to, next time you go to 7-Eleven and buy a sandwich, think about how much work goes into that wheat. Well, we don't thresh wheat like this anymore. We actually have machines that are enormous that are the ultimate expression of this particular machine. But here it is. It's going to wander through a field of wheat, cutting the wheat like this with a, with a wheel, and then processing that wheat backwards and dropping it off into a cart that follows behind. Whoa, triple the amount of wheat that you can thresh in the same amount of time. You'd have to have people going like this as fast as they possibly could to keep up with a machine like this, okay? So what's the next thing after this? How is this powered? 
it's probably being pulled by what? Animals. What kind of animal? A horse. It's probably being pulled by a horse. Problem? What's the problem? Tell me the problem. Too slow. What's the solution? Speed it up. How do you speed up beyond the horse? I know. Find a machine that you can attach to this that makes it run. But, but we don't have such a machine. I don't even know what it looks like. What will it run on? I don't know. Let's go talk to who? The chemists, the physicists, whoever. We need to talk to a scientist to figure out how to solve this problem. You see what's happening here? Becomes a problem-solution thing that really starts to gain speed. And um, aren't you here at La Pietra to figure out what the problems are and how to solve those problems and find solutions? Okay. All right. So here's another problem. You recall from the return of Martin Guerre. There's the woman walking down the row. She has a big apron on and a big, huge pocket. And in that pocket is the seed. And she's going like this, throwing the seed out in a large spray. All very regular and all of that. How, what percentage of that seed do you think actually germinates? Probably pretty low. That's why she's throwing so many of them out there, right? So if maybe 10% of them actually germinate, that's 90% of your seed that you paid for that will never come up in the world. Problem. Solution? Seed drill. This one goes right down the row. You pour the seed in the top right here, and it comes out the bottom right here. Tiny little row of seed. Each seed put just a few inches apart from the other. 100% germination. You lower your cost, and all of a sudden you have rows and rows and rows and rows of wheat, and it's all coming up at a very regular pace. You go out and get yourself a threshing machine. Shazam! Money coming in the door. Shazam! That's exactly what's going on here, okay? Now, this itself is a problem because it's laying out a bunch of seeds. And what happens when you have a bunch of seeds that all decide to come up 100%? What do you have to go in and do? You have to go in and cut out like every, every other seed because they can't grow that close to each other. What would be a great solution to this? Come on now. A machine that does what? What is it going to do for you, Caroline? Yeah, I could take out, but what would be a more efficient thing to do? To actually put it in. So how about if we develop some kind of machine that goes like this? Every time it hits bottom, it drops one seed. Two inches later, it drops one seed. Two inches later, one seed. Wow, this is unbelievable, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> so this is not the Jethro Tull who's the rock star although Jethro Tull, the rock star, would actually take his name from Jethro Tull. He's the inventor of the seed drill. Somebody came up with that idea of the seed drill. Let's go along and plant the seeds one after the other. And then you can feel the speed starting to pick up already here. Then Charles Townsend comes up with the idea that, well, now that we can actually plant, see, you see what the theme of this whole lecture is about? Dirt. It's all about dirt. It's about dirt. What do you do in the dirt? Let's start with the dirt and figure out what we can do with the dirt. And apparently you can do a lot with the dirt. You guys are a little disconnected from the dirt, but maybe someday you might have the opportunity to get reconnected with the dirt and we'll, we'll see what happens there, okay? All right, so Townsend, seeing what's going on around him, 
thinks, I want to I wanna make this even more efficient. I want to be even more productive. So all you guys who are in biology right now, he, being the good biologist, looks and says, hmm, how very interesting. Some plants, when you plant them in the dirt, actually remove nitrogen from the dirt. They suck it up because that's what plants need is nitrogen, right? So what you end up with if you plant over and over and over again is what? Dirt. dirt that has no nitrogen. So that's a problem. What's the solution? A plant that, that puts nitrogen back in the soil. Is there such a thing? You bet. Yes. So soybeans, for example, turnips, for example, beets, for example, they actually put nitrogen back in the soil. What, what magic. So instead of planting the same field over and over and over again with the same plant, he starts to rotate fields between plants that put nitrogen back in and plants that take nitrogen back out. And then he comes up with a brilliant solution to leave one of those fields unplanted. What? That's crazy. Why would you do that? I mean, all of a sudden you can be so productive. I know. Instead of planting the field, I'm going to bring my cows out there and let them poop all day on the field. And then I'm going to turn it up and wow, everything's going to grow. When I was a kid, I grew up in the dirt big time in Kaneohe. My father had three acres of land and that's what I had to do every day after school was go work the land at home, you know, all these kinds of things. So I made a compost pile just like they're doing up outside uh, Cushman's chemistry room up there. But this one was enormous. It was like half as big as this whole area right here. Enormous. It was so rich that there was steam rising off the top. There was so much bacterial activity going on that it, it just looked like it was going to explode. And here was my big experiment. I took a tomato plant, one tomato plant, and I planted it right in the top of the compost pit because I wanted to see what a tomato plant would do if it was growing. This was a tomato plant that was literally being dropped into a pile of steroids. And this tomato plant over the course of a week went wham. It just blew up into a tree and then it died. It was as if I was pumping it full of amphetamines and then it finally its heart broke and it just blew up in the air. And I was like, wow, that's so exciting. Okay, well, anyway, more child of the dirt than, than uh, you actually know. So crop rotation, okay? Burke is going to talk about that tomorrow. All right, now, mm, problem. We have cows. And then we have really productive cows. What's the solution to the non-productive cow? We talked about this yesterday. What do you do with a non-productive cow? No, you don't. They're too valuable to eat. You breed them with who? A really productive cow. And the first time you may get a cow that may be productive or not productive, but you do it enough times, chances are what's going to happen? You're going to get that productive cow. So here we see the glimmerings of the use of genetic. They don't have any idea what genetics are yet. They don't have any idea what DNA is yet. We're light years away from the genome project or, or Crick's uh, uncovery of the helix. And all they knew was when you put a really productive cow with a non-productive cow and you keep doing it over and over again, you get a productive cow. And if you put a productive cow with a productive cow, you get a productive cow. <laughs> and if you do that enough times, right? So what exactly kind of productive are we looking for? Milk, for one thing. 
strength for another, meat, more meat for another. You can see all these problems and all these solutions being carried out in this particular case. So select the animals with the best characteristics and breed them together. Now you know it's only going to be a small hop, skip, and a jump before some human beings would figure out that you could do that with humans as well. So they would try to do that. So you can see how sometimes this thing can get turned in negative directions, right? So we're going to, like Hitler did, marry tall blonde woman with tall blonde Nordic man, do that enough times and you develop tall blonde Nordic race. And there, you know, this was going on during, this was another one of Hitler's perversions. He was attempting to create a master race. Uh, so anyway, you can see where that's gonna go, okay? So in the end, we produce bigger, better, more productive animals. And as Jared Diamond has already told you, the more you hang around these people, sorry, these creatures, the more you hang around them, the more immune you get to the diseases they carry. And we already know what happened in the New World because of contact with these domesticated animals. Europeans were becoming immune to the kinds of diseases that would wipe out other people when they came in contact with them, okay? Now this cow can now, is bigger and stronger. It can pull that thresher or that seed drill. But of course, the next thing you're gonna do is do this with a horse and you're gonna have a much faster process there. And then somebody's gonna go, hmm, people like to gamble. Take large horse very fast, put it against another large horse very fast, race them and bet on it. You can see the directions that this is going to go, right? Okay, selective breeding. All right, so we see all these factors coming into play, but it turns out that where most of this is happening is in England. Here's the question, why England? Why didn't all of these factors come into play in France or in what would become Germany or in Italy, especially in Italy, which was such a fertile place? Why didn't it happen there? Why did it happen with the English? So there are answers to this. Of course, England is rich in coal and iron, which is gonna be the beginnings of a energy revolution. It has a river system. It's, uh, England is more populated with rivers than practically any place in Europe. So they had a chance to move material on the river system. They had a commercial infrastructure. They had a real sort of strong sense of what commerce meant. The English liked to do business almost from the beginning of, of time, the English liked to do business. So there were plenty of people with lots of money to invest in new kinds of enterprises like, oh, the seed drill. So, so Sam, for example, you being a good English businesswoman, you would have seen that seed drill and gone, hmm, that's worth investing in. I'm going to give Mr. Jethro Tull 100,000 pounds to make a thousand of those seed drills and to sell them at a, at a good price and he's going to pay me back the hundred thousand pounds plus interest ten percent wow what a deal i've got on that and then elisa is going to go hmm i'm going to insure mr tull's business because he looks like a good businessman and if anything ever happens to him that's fine i'll pay up but chances are nothing's going to happen to him he's just going to make more and more business and he's going to get into that insurance policy with me because he wants to make sure he doesn't lose it. You can see I'm speaking faster because things are happening faster, blah, 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 blah. You can see what's going on here, okay? And then, of course, England had those colonies, 
in the New World that supplied the raw materials that they needed to make this thing go. One of those was lumber. They needed trees. They needed wood to build the factories. They also used wood in the beginning for heat, for energy, but later that would run out really quickly, and then they would turn to coal. So what England figured out really early on is the world is full of natural raw goods. We can get those raw goods. We can have them manufactured into really special products, and then we can sell them to people at a profit. Okay? And they also had a government that encouraged this. So because England was one of the first countries in Europe to go constitutional monarchy, in which the whole business of government was checked and balanced and supported business, they had everything that they needed in order to be the first ones to make this Industrial Revolution go. Okay? And so the Industrial Revolution in England focuses on one product, textiles. Okay, so why textiles? Well, the English figured, figured out early on that one of the things that people wanted most in the world was comfortable clothing. So have any of you ever worn uh, something made out of wool? I mean, real wool, not the, not the synthetic stuff, but the real wool. Horrible, isn't it? It's itchy and scratchy and awful. It's just totally uncomfortable. Problem? Itchy, scratchy, uncomfortable. Solution? Not itchy or scratchy or uncomfortable. What's the solution? Cotton. You're wearing it right here. Okay, so cotton. Cotton comes from the cotton plant. Drive in the back of Waimanalo sometime and you'll see native Hawaiian cotton all growing by that sewage plant back there. Uh, I know because I ride by that on the weekends. So anyway, <laughs> cotton. But cotton is a little fluff ball, right? Wow, very, very difficult to take that fluff ball and turn it into thread, cotton thread. It's a real difficult process, mostly done by hand. But the British figured out early on the solution um, the problem, which is the difficulty of t turning cotton into a cloth, could be solved through technology. There has to be ways in which you can get this done, and they figured that out. And one of the things that they figured out is the flying shuttle. So once you've got it into thread form, you know how you stand in front of a machine, right? Here's the weaving machine, and you shoot the, th the shuttle through. It's a, it's a bit of thread, and then you push that thread up against the other threads. And in that weaving sense, you're starting to make cloth. Cloth is a weave. So you push the shuttle through, you push, you push the shuttle through, you push, you push the shuttle through. What's the problem here? Huh? What's the problem? There are all kinds of problems here. Push the shuttle through, push, push the shuttle through, push. What's the problem? Huh? I'm taking too long. It's frustrating you, isn't it? You sit there on your computer going, it's taking too long. What's the solution? What's the solution? It needs to go faster. What needs to go faster? There are two things that have to go faster here. Solve the problem real quick. The shuttle has to go faster and muscle power has to go faster. Can I go any faster with my muscles? I don't think so. I can keep going for a long time but at some point I'm going to ask for a break. And if I ask for a break, you're not getting any cloth made. Solution? Machine. Louis XIV had already figured out hydraulics to make water come up out of his fountains. Hmm, hydraulics, machine that never breaks. Okay, so here I am at my machine, right? I'm happy, I'm making money, 
I'm going as fast as I can. Guy walks up to me and says, bye-bye, you're gone. I've replaced you with a machine. Symposium. How, much, how do I feel? That's for you to think about. Okay? So here, we're going to get not only this muscle power, Mehana, as you said, through the machine, but we're going to get a machine to throw the shuttle and throw the shuttle and throw the shuttle. And if we can do that at light speed, we can produce bolts and bolts of cloth. And then what's the next thing? Because what you're going to get is the same kind of cloth, same color problem. People don't like the same color. Solution? Huh? People don't like the same color. Dye. So if you were a thinking person wandering around at this point and going, hmm, where do I find dyes? Because they actually want colored cloth. Where do you find dyes? Who are the people? You're the person who doesn't want to put out white cloth anymore. Tell me. Where are you going to go? Go find somebody who can help you with the dye problem. Who is it? Didn't they have colored cloth before this? No. What? Well, yeah, through natural dyes, but that's what I'm asking you. Where do you go? Huh? The chemist. Do you know why you're in chemistry? You're in chemistry to solve problems. The dye was the problem of fashion. People didn't want to wear whole white because that's the color of cotton. They wanted nice colors. So now I can have red thread, blue thread, red thread, blue thread. And what can I produce? A flag of red, white, and blue. And I'll call it liberty, equality, and fraternity and wave it above people, you know, with half my thing down and be called Lady Liberty. And, and be the symbol of the French Revolution. I mean, look at the way this thing can go, right? Huh? How did they make those kind of things before? All by hand. Mm. So you have to ask yourself, is something being lost in the process of speeding this up and making it available to people, right? Maybe yes, maybe no. Okay, so, all right. So we get something called, as soon as we start to get the technology, something called the putting out system. So. If I'm an entrepreneur, I don't have a factory yet. So I go to you, Elise, and to you, Sam, and you, Caroline, and you, Mehana, and you, Cynthia. And you're good women who are working at home on your farm and all of that, but you're feeling a little eh, and you'd like a little you know, extra money and all of that. And I say, look, I'll give you the machine and the cloth, I mean, I mean the textile itself. You turn it into cloth and I'll pay you to do that. You give me the cloth and I'll go sell it on the open market. Sound good to you? It would sound good to you because previously you were stuck on the farm cleaning up after the pigs and having to marry your cousin because that was the only place there was only those people who were in the village, right? I mean, life wasn't, eh, life was pretty, pretty bad, right? And now all of a sudden you can sit here and you can make cloth and get a little money for yourself and then you can spend it on, oh, I don't know, something nice for yourself. And then maybe you can take a little trip to London where you might meet somebody other than your cousin to marry, and so on and so forth, right? So we start to see the beginnings of what we call proto-industry, pre-industry. We don't have factories yet, but we're getting very, very close to that because the problem is each of these women is working independently you're 10 miles from Sam, Sam's 10 miles from you and from Caroline. And so Elise, what's the problem? You're 10 miles from all of these people and I, the entrepreneurs, have to go 10 miles, 10 miles. So what's the solution? Put them, together. Put them all together, bene, factory. It's easy, there you go, okay? So 
In the meantime, as we're starting to put them together into these little factories, we come up with other machines like the spinning jenny, okay, which takes cloth and begins to speed things up in the production of cloth. You can see there are all these people who, are, who must have wanted to get in on the game. This is the beginning. What is that? Okay, wow, that was spontaneous. Okay, so this is the beginning of really what we're calling uh, mechanical engineering. Anybody even remotely interested in mechanical engineering in the future as a college career? I'm that for college. <clears throat> and this is, this is really the, the, the <laughs> amazing. This is the beginning of this thing, mechanical engineering, okay? All right, so now we know that muscle power doesn't do it, right, Mihana? And we want things to speed up as fast as possible. And so, on. Okay, so the next thing that's gonna happen is an energy re revolution. So we know that there's only so much energy that a muscle can put out. So we're going to start to look for machines that solve the problem of humans' in inability to provide the energy necessary to go where we want to go. And the first thing that they look to is water power. So you know from way back in the Middle Ages that water wheels were used to turn grinding stones that ground together that would grind up uh, flour, grind up wheat into flour and so on and so forth, okay? You can also take a water wheel and it's turning and you can use that to turn a machine that goes like this, that creates lots of cloth, but where's the water? It's up in the hills. And if the water's up in the hills and it flows downwards, because so, you need downward pressure in order to do it, darn, those hills are really far away. Can I produce some kind of a machine that works off of water that can be a little closer to where I'm doing business? Absolutely. So here we have the water frame that's powering the spinning jenny. So here's, this is a little spindle. And the spindle is going around at light speed and it's taking the um, thread and winding it up on the spindle, which will then go to another part over here where it gets turned into cloth. So this is just simply winding the thread up and it's being driven by water power. Okay, so problem, solution. Okay, so here's another document in the DBQ, the giant DBQ here. This is cotton imported to Britain from various locations like uh, the Americas and also India between 1701 and 1800, so basically 99 years. What do you see here? Generally, Generally you see what? You see growth, and in fact, you see quite astonishing growth. From here all the way up to here, you see an explosion of imported cotton. So what would you then expect to see next? You're going to see an explosion of cotton finished, exported, back to all those places where people wanted. And look, it works exactly the same way. So what happens with Britain is that they become the textile manufacturing center of the world. Now, one more step in this process. What direction is the money flowing here? If you take the raw cotton from America, bring it to England, process it into cloth, what happens to its value? No, 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 that once, 
it goes up by a lot, right? Because it's finished cloth, right? You buy a bolt of cloth down the street and it costs X. You buy a dress at uh, Macy's, it's X squared, right? So what direction is the money flowing here? They're selling all of these Macy's dresses, so to speak, all over the place now. What direction is the money flowing? It's flowing back to England. It's flowing, yes, it's flowing back to England. So here's the critical term, mercantilism. Okay, so you're familiar with the concept of mercantilism. What it means is the enrichment of national wealth, the enrichment of national wealth through policies that make sure that money flows in the direction of the nation. Okay, so that means you want to import the raw goods and export the more expensive finished goods. Now, if you can imagine that other countries start to want to become mercantilist as well, well, the next thing you need is a navy because then you're going to have wars on your hands as people attempt to gain the upper hand in terms of mercantilism. Okay, so that's how we're reading these primary sources. Okay. All right, so now that we've ha got an energy revolution underway, then we have lots of product being produced. What's the problem? Transportation, and why is transportation the problem? You have a product that's being produced. What is it that you want to do with the product? Sell it where? In a place called a market. Where's the market? Not where you are. How do you get it to market? usually on a horse. Time, ready? Time is money. The faster you can get it to market, the quicker you can get that money back. And when you get that money back, you build a larger factory, you produce more product, and so on and so forth, and you can see the race is on. So the question now is, who's going to be in the right place at the right time to invent the right thing that's going to represent the transportation revolution? Okay, so we take the steam engine and we apply it to that old horse and cart. The poor horse, he gets either shoved out onto the pasture or he gets eaten. Or as you know, horses are actually sort of boiled down to make soap in the old days. That's what they used to use horses for. Okay, but nevertheless, the horse is going to become obsolete because a machine. And too bad for the horse, he can't protest. But human beings can protest a la the Luddites, and you're going to be looking at that really closely, okay? All right, so we see the invention of the steam engine by Thomas Newcomen, and what we get here is the introduction of the steam engine, and then it's enhanced by James Watt. So this is a steam engine that actually becomes portable, something that you can take and put somewhere else, or you can actually take it to a different location and use it for some particular reason, okay? So James Watt, and by the way, you know the term the watt, right? Like, like 10 watts of electricity comes from James Watt. Okay, so here it is. You take the steam engine and you put it on top of some wheels and you've got yourself something that can move, everybody ready? 25 miles an hour. That's light speed, okay? So the next time you're stuck behind that little old lady who can't see over the, uh, can't even see over the steering wheel going down Pocky at 19 miles an hour and you feel like you're never going to get where you're going to get, 
just think she thinks that she's flying at light speed because that's what people thought about this okay so this first steam engine and you can see that the race is on we're just going to have to make it bigger and better so this is stevenson's rocket everybody ready this one could go 35 miles an hour whoa if you were riding on this thing, you must have felt like you were on a jet airplane, except the jet airplane, you didn't even know what that was yet. The wind would have been blowing through your hair. You would have been thinking, just like Kate Winslet on the front of the Titanic, you know? Celine Dion's voice would have been in your, in your head. You would have felt like, I'm leaving my village and my cousin behind, and I can find some Brad Pitt-like guy to marry. I know he's out there in that city somewhere. I just have to find him, you know? There you go, Stevenson's rocket. So what can be carried in the cars that are behind this? You name it. Anything can be carried. And there's one really important thing that can be carried, and that is communications. So now my letter that I'm writing to Caroline proposing that we start a business together, instead of taking a month to get to you, takes a few hours to get to you. And you can immediately go, yes, let's do business, and you send the letter back, and off we go. And now you can hit the send button, and somebody in Singapore can get the same message like that. Isn't that astonishing? You press send, and she gets the message in Singapore a nanosecond later. It's unbelievable. Sometime you should, on, on, online, you can Google up picture of the internet and you'll see just how complicated the net is and how the routing system works and all of that, okay? All right, oh, look, see? Stevenson's rocket. Okay, so a couple more here and then we'll, oh, we got a little bit more time, okay. Now, problem, problem. What else can we carry besides goods? People, exactly. Well, are we going to let them ride for free? No. Problem. If we're going to not let them ride for free, what's the problem? Are you going to get mad? No, no, no. We're not going to let them ride for free. What's the problem? They don't have money. We, no, no, they have money. How much are we going to charge How much are we going to charge them? And when we decide to charge them, what do we have to communicate to them? Um, How much we're going to charge them. How do we do that? With a ticket. Whoever invented the ticket hit the, hit the jackpot. Somebody who could print a ticket like this, small, that you could hold in your hand, that had a little amount on it, like 12 shillings. 12 shillings bought you a trip from Liverpool to Manchester. And uh, you, uh, there you go. So it's a whole system of organizing people. And then what are the other problems that are coming up here with regard to the railroad? You have railroad going in this direction. Do you have train coming in the other direction? Ooh, what's the problem? Line. Boom. What do you do? You need a system. So what's the solution to the problem? One track? Two tracks. One going this way, one going that way. Then what's the problem? Somebody has to keep track. You have to hire somebody to sit at the switch and make sure that the trains go this way and the trains go that way. Jump forward to last fall when that guy who was supposed to be in charge of hitting the switch in California when an Amtrak train going this way and a freight train going this way were supposed to go on different tracks. And what was he doing? Texting. Texting. 
he got a text 20 seconds before those two trains hit each other head-on going 60 miles an hour. I think like 170 people or something like that died in that crash. But they know because they could see his text records. And they saw that 20 seconds before, he took his eye off the ball and didn't hit the switch, and those two went against each other. He, he, he was on the train, the Amtrak train. He was supposed to hit the switch. He died in the process. He was on the front end of the Amtrak train. So he was supposed to be looking ahead, yeah. Okay? So anyway, so here we go. We got a ticket. Problem solved. Tickets. You know, probably the coolest thing that I ever saw in the heraldry project was Kalena Frank. Didn't I tell you about this? She came in with a facsimile of a ticket to the Titanic. What? Her great uncle had a ticket to go on the Titanic, but he got the measles and couldn't go and gave the ticket to somebody else. And he lived as a result of that. She had a, a fax copy of it. Her, her grandmother wouldn't let her touch the real copy of it. But you guys remember, you guys have all seen the Titanic, right? Remember the whole gambling scene in the beginning when Leonardo DiCaprio actually gambles to win that ticket? Yeah, that was the biggest gamble of his life, and he lost that on that Italian one. Name? Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. yeah? I don't think. Okay. All right, we'll finish up. Uh, here we go. Let's make this the last slide. Okay, fine. Okay, so all of a sudden we have thousands of problems, and everybody wants to solve the problem. Why? Because there's money in solving problems. Now, I don't mean to be crass about this, but why are you in biology? Why are you in chemistry? Why are you in physics? Yes, it's lovely to think that you're going to become the next Renaissance woman, the next Leonardo da Vinciette, but really the reason that you're there is to potentially explore ways that you can use chemistry and physics and biology to make money for yourself in a career and hopefully think about humanity and solve problems. And so here we see the problems of the railway being solved through tracks, through bridges, and then you're going to put up telegraph lines and so on and so forth, and there you go. And so I'll finish at that point and pick it up again tomorrow. Uh, I won't belabor too many points here. We kind of want to get through this uh, quickly, but you definitely got the idea uh, yesterday. It's our major theme. Our major theme is problems and solutions. The Industrial Revolution is characterized by people who recognized problems, offered solutions, and maybe even more appropriately made money off of those solutions. So if you ask the question, what drives the problem-solution process forward, actually that's a debatable question. Do inventors do it for the love? Do they do it for the potential profits? Is it a combination of both? What is it that drives technology forward like that? Is it really just money or is it something else? At some point, uh, I'm, I can't remember if you'll actually see that or not in a film clip that I show, uh, but Mr. Burke tells us of this moment when Alexander Graham Bell, who had figured out the telephone but had hesitated to go get a patent on it at the patent office, hesitated too long and suddenly discovered that there was somebody else who was also working on a telephone. So he rushed to the patent office and got a patent 60 minutes prior to the other guy arriving to knock on the patent office door. 60 minutes ahead of the other guy. And what do we get? The Bell telephone. It is 
you guys don't know it because you've grown up with cell phones and every other kind of Hawaiian tell and everything else, but when I grew up, it was the Bell telephone. There was only one. It was the only system that we had, the inventor of the telephone, and he gets there 60 minutes ahead of this other guy. Do we know who the other guy is? No, who cares? He didn't get to the patent office in time. Uh, and in fact, this is also true of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin had written his book on the origin of species, but had been waiting, and he was developing it and developing it, and he wanted to finish the chapters, and he wanted to nosh on it, and so on and so forth. And he suddenly heard that there was another scientist who had also picked up on the process of natural selection and adaptation, and was about to publish. And he suddenly jumped up and put a shorter version of his book into publication immediately and got it out there before the other guy did by weeks. And comes down to us in history as the man who he is evolution and all of that. Um, so we ask what drives these things forward. Okay. Okay, so we move obviously from the railroad problem, communications, solution, the railroad. If you're gonna lay down all that track if you're going to cover all of Great Britain and then later Europe with all this railroad track, why not take the same space and fill it up with telegraph poles? We go back one. See them? See all the way along here. I look at this picture and I see money. Lots of money. Because if I can put a telephone pole along here, since somebody else has already done all the dredging and the digging and the cutting and all that, why not put a telephone pole along there? It's not a telephone pole yet, it's a telegraph pole. And if I can figure out how to send a signal down a wire, tap, 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 I can start to communicate a whole lot faster than I was communicating before. And so we get Samuel Morse who develops this thing called the telegraph. You guys are most familiar with this because you guys all saw Titanic, right? And there's the ship is going down, the guy is tapping out SOS, 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 the international signal for distress. Uh, but the ship goes down anyway and Leonardo dies and Kate Winslet lives and so on and so forth, you know. And I kind of wish she hadn't lived because what she said at the Oscars the other night made me cringe. I want that woman to stop talking. For God's sakes, just stand up at the mic and say thank you and then leave. Did anybody see that? Wow. Can that woman flap on or what? It was like, I'm so happy I got a list this long to thank. and. Never mind. Okay. Samuel Morse. Did you see that? Very cool. Okay. The telegraph. So in the end, when we put all of this together, we have a question sitting up in front of us, which is why did Britain end up dominating the Industrial Revolution? Why did it start there? Why did it develop there? Why did it flower there? And, and why is it that Britain became the place where the Industrial Revolution reached its height. Did you say so, why didn't it end there as well? No, it didn't. Not that it, it, it hasn't ended anywhere. It's still going. But why did it start there? Why did it develop there? Why did it reach its highest point there in its original form? And so when you look at this image, if this were a primary source, if this were a document that you were considering, what do you see here? You see massive rail lines. There isn't any place in Britain that isn't connected by rail. And man, those guys, they run on time. If the train is supposed to leave at 11.01 in Britain, it leaves at 11.01. .01. 
And if you're not there, if you're there at 11.02, the train is gone. In Italy, if the train leaves at 11.01, chances are it might leave by 11.45. The Italians, I've traveled all over Italy, it's amazing. The trains just almost don't even run on a schedule. You just kind of wait and go, okay, finally a sign says train approaching and then you wait another 20 minutes or whatever. In Britain, it's like this. They're always on time, subways, trains, everything. So there's something about British culture. What is it about British culture that makes them so retentive about time? Well, I don't know, maybe time is money. And if time is money, then you're going to run on time. But you know, the Germans are retentive too. Uh, their trains run on time as well, but they didn't turn into the world empire that the British did. So why not? What, what's, what is it about the British that somehow puts them on the front end of this thing? Okay. Now, ultimately, we are going to want to expand outside our borders. What do we have surrounding all of us in England? We have the Atlantic Ocean, the North Sea, and across the Atlantic Ocean, vast resources that we can tap into, bring back to England, process into finished goods, and send out to the rest of the world. Problem? takes very long time for a sailing ship to go to New World. Solution, put steam engine on top of sailing ship, cut down masts. Fast. Now we can go 20 miles an hour in the water instead of six miles an hour or knots, as they say. And so Robert Fulton attaches a steam engine to a ship called the Clermont, and before you know it, everything starts to speed up. And you can see how things are starting to speed up. Okay. Now, ultimately, we need one more invention to really make this thing work. Because up until this point, we've been dealing with metals that aren't necessarily as strong as they need to be. If we really want to go up, if we really want to build long bridges over large expanses of water, if we want to lay down track all over the world, we need something that's better than the iron that we've been working with. See? So problem iron that doesn't hold up, solution, something that mixes metals together. Anybody in geology right now? So why are you in geology? Well, there's lots of reasons to be in geology, but not the least of which, I don't know if Cushman would agree with me on this one, but not the least of which is the job of the geologist is to understand what's in the rock. And when you understand what's in the rock, you find out that there are certain metals that can be mixed together under extremely high heat. And out of that comes steel. Does this sound familiar to you? It should, because there's that guy with his rapier in guns, germs, and steel, adding carbon to metals that have been cooked together. It makes it flexible. It turns you into an extremely powerful culture. And if you can lay down all those rail tracks, well, you know the whole story, right? So the Bessemer converter is one of those inventions that's truly remarkable. This guy simply figured out that if you cook all these metals together, add carbon to it, you would end up with a, with a type of metal, steel, add carbon in, the, in, the, in its powder form. You would add it to the steel, and if you add too much of it, it makes the steel brittle. If you don't add enough of it, it makes it too flexible, etc. It's all a kind of trial and error process, okay? So the steel, whoa, Bessemer converter. Okay, it's only a matter of time. Somebody's going to figure out that electricity, which you remember Ben Franklin and the key on the kite and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Lots of mythology around electricity. But eventually we end up with Thomas Edison. 
and he's the inventor of the electric light bulb. Problem, darkness. <laughs> Solution, light. <laughs> but actually, it's not quite that simple. Here's my factory, and you guys are all my little factory workers, and you're all cranking out right here on your little computers, I don't know, uh, messages that mm, make money for me in some way. Okay? Can you work in the dark? Yes, so that's not really a good example, so let's forget that example for a second. Here you are, uh, I don't know, you're sitting in a little assembly line cranking out little remotes that are going to go with LCD projectors. Can you do this in the dark? No. If I have lights turned on, I can have you work from 8 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon, and then what? The lights go out, no more profit. I turn the lights back on again and I can have a second shift work from 6 in the afternoon until 2 o'clock in the morning. Double my profit. The electric light bulb is a bombshell on culture. It is a bombshell. And Burke is going to pick up on this in the film that we're going to start watching tomorrow in a really big way. This is a transformational moment when all of a sudden everything that had to be shut down when the sun went down changed. And the light bulb made that possible. It made everything possible. Productivity, mm, social life, everything changed with the coming of the light bulb. Okay, previously, it's obviously candles that you're working from. Thomas Edison. So here's the light bulb. Did you see it come in? No, you didn't see it come in. Try it again. Watch. Isn't that a cool effect? OK, so here's the first light bulb. Wow, pretty, uh, pretty huge. And now today. We're using these, uh, whatever you call them, I can never remember the name, these special light bulbs that use 25% electricity and all of that. Do you guys have those in your houses right now? Do you notice how they hesitate when they come on? That's part of the trick, apparently, of reducing the energy, that they don't come on just like that, that they come on slowly, is, has something to do with the, the lesser amount of energy that they're using. But it's kind of disconcerting because we have them in the bathroom. You come really early in the morning, it's all dark, and you turn on the light and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, whoop, it goes up like that. And you're, anyway, never mind. Okay. Yeah, they are. Well, this one actually has one of those. See it? Yes, so does that one in the back. But this one doesn't, right? See the quality of the light, how much more orange it is? Anyway, there you go. I still have my uh, 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 Christmas lights up in our house, although my wife is threatening to divorce me unless I take them down. But I'm holding out for the end of uh, February. OK, so eventually we're going to take electricity and we're going to apply it in a number of different ways. But one of the things that we really have to do with electricity is store it. Problem, electricity comes and goes. Zap. Out on the golf course with your golf club, getting ready to swing. Boom, you're dead. Or, shockingly, as happened last Tuesday, on the corner of University and Kapilani, where I live, some guy got off the bus, walked over to the corner, stepped on one of those electrical uh, plates where there's a conduit or something down below, and then put his hand on the light pole and got electrocuted to death. I was driving right by at that moment, and there's the, there's the fireman doing CPR on the guy. He died. He just stepped on a plate, created an electrical current, and his life was over. Shocking. What? Literally. <laughs> Literally. No one said anything about it. It's that. been on the news every single day. Of course, the city is now in a panic because the wires in those boxes were frayed and they might get sued and so on and so forth. So anyway, 
The idea is that you need a place to store power and you need its transmission to be consistent. So we're starting to see all these new inventions. Now, in 1851, London decided, England decided to put on a great exhibition of all the great inventions. Very typical, pick a moment in time, everything's going really well, and you bring all of it together into one place and you show off all of these new inventions. And wow, this, when you see photographs of the, of the exhibition hall all in glass, this crystal palace, um, it's quite remarkable. And what must have happened inside over the course of the year uh, that this festival or this exhibition went on must have been uh, truly remarkable. But you could have seen everything there. Every kind of invention, even inventions that were military in nature, because you know that the Industrial Revolution is going to be applied at some point to better and more efficient ways of killing people. Obviously, if the guillotine was a humane way of, of executing people, then we can use uh, industrial technology to figure out better ways to kill lots of people at the same time, right? So we're going to factor that into the equation. Okay, so as to the theme of labor conditions, what you're looking at here is coal mines in Wales and England, because both are coal-rich areas. In the beginning, extremely dangerous work still is. Any of you guys seen Red Sky or October Sky, the film October Sky? Awesome film about a young boy in North Carolina who becomes a scientist, uh, but his father wants him to be a coal miner. Um, and he ends up being a guy who's, who builds rockets, goes off to school. Don't know. Um, so anyway, uh, here are these coal mines. And what you're looking at here are actually women working in these coal mines. They were hired to do this kind of work, which was the pushing and the pulling of these coal buckets along rail tracks, lit only by a candle, all the way out to the edge of the mine where that coal bucket would then be dumped over and it would all be heaped up and then the coal would be processed and so on. So you start to see uh, these new entrepreneurs developing these coal mines and making money off of it beginning to hire both women and children as part of the labor force. And it starts to raise questions about the conditions of labor, who should work, who, how you might protect the conditions of labor, uh, and whether or not mm, child labor is okay, female labor is okay, so on and so forth. Okay? So we're going to look at that um, in detail in a little bit more, and I'm actually going to show you a clip from Oliver Twist um, that kind of brings that point home. So um, this is actually an image that you're familiar with because you just saw it in the DBQ. This is the women matchmakers. Uh, they're, they're making matchbooks. In those days, it wasn't like you see now where it's a bunch of matches with a flap, a little flap over it. It actually came in a matchbook, which slides open. You can still get them that way. Did you, did, did you, do you guys, if you have brothers, uh, you know the little matchbook cars? Hot Wheels, yeah. remember those? Those started out as matchbooks. They were tiny little cars. I was obsessed with them when I was a kid. My mother, when I was good, used to take me to Ala Moana to buy one. And then she would wait like three or four months. And if I continued to be good, I'd get to buy one more until I had a whole collection of them. But they were only about that big. And then they came out with Hot Wheels, which was just a bomb because it had these big wheels and they would go really fast and all that. Anyway, long story short, these are matchbook maker women, and they become the backbone, well, 
part of the backbone of the labor industry in Britain. And this image here you can describe and you can draw from if you choose to. Okay, so in the beginning, child labor, there's astonishingly, there's no assumption, no assumption of a limit on child labor. You're seeing this reflected in the Sadler report. There's no assumption that a child should be limited in the number of hours that he would work. In other words, if you, if you, you send him to a factory to work and he, the boss wants him to work from 6 in the morning until 9 o'clock at night, well, that's the way it goes. Um, and so factory children worked Monday through Saturday, and on Sunday it was typical for them to go to church and then to Sunday school. And you recall my conversation about starting out with that assumption of, uh, of original sin as a teacher. I think it would be fairly clear to infer, or reasonable to infer from this image, that this teacher is starting out with that assumption of original sin. Here he's got the kid by the ear, um, and he's probably going to smack him around uh, because the child has misbehaved. So there's lots that's been built into this image. This little girl right here, obviously very troubled and this little kid has probably already been smacked, he's holding his forehead. And so a picture is emerging that's not particularly pretty about the conditions of, of child labor and life for children in this emerging industrial age. And again, I'll show you a clip from Oliver Twist that dramatizes that. So once you put the child into the factory, things get uh, even more interesting. These are called scavengers and pieciers. And so this is a a textile factory and basically what they're doing up here is they're grabbing off little pieces of lint or thread that might jam the machines. So they're crawling around up here. These belts are going fast. Everything is going really fast. And as you start to read through the primary source, you'll even pick up on this in the Sadler report and other reports that you might come across, is that these children were often badly injured and or killed in the process. It was quite easy to get your arms stuck in a belt and ripped off. Uh, this would have happened quite often, as a matter of fact. And so uh, people began to look at the conditions of child labor and they began to ask questions about it. But again, as you read through the sources, it's very much a debate, an open debate in the beginning about, about child labor. Because on the one hand, the factory owner would say this is good for their character. Uh, they're in the factory, they're working, it's good for them to build character and to work hard all day long. Look at you guys, you're so soft, all of you sitting here with your little computers in your little comfy classroom on this cold blustery day. You should be out digging ditches out there. It would build your character. That's the way my father treated me. As uh, soon as you were done with school, come home, dig in the dirt, whatever. No, we don't need a ditch right there, but dig it anyway. No, we don't need a wall right there, but build one anyway, you know? What, what's going on with that? But for you guys, uh, I'll go to Alamoana or whatever it is that you do after school. So anyway, here we are, child labor. We're going to look at that as a theme. And one of the things that comes out of child labor is punishment. So often these children were malnourished. They weren't fed in such a way as to make them productive, but hey, they were expendable. Population was exploding. So it wasn't as if I wanted to spend a whole lot of money feeding them well. And again, Oliver Twist is going to pick up on that idea. Um, if you've seen it, you know that it all kind of revolves around more. You want more. Okay, so malnourishment is one of the problems. Here, obviously, this kid has been 
this is a juvenile of some sort who's been caught doing something and he's now, this is actually a, you know, a police photograph and he's got a number around his neck, um, <clears throat> stealing of some sort probably. So they were beaten, runaways were sent to prison, and eventually, obviously you get this story of Oliver Twist, which is about the pickpockets, and the story of Oliver Twist is when Oliver, taken out of this labor house, uh, uh, is sold off to Bill Sykes, who then brings him into this troop of young little pickpockets who make all their money by filtering around in the train stations and picking your pocket as you're getting onto the train. Um, so we'll pick up on that when we see the clip. So eventually, the debate rises to a crescendo and their hearings are held, Sadler reports, so on and so forth, and we begin to see reform. So factory owners are arguing that child labor is good because it's good for their character and it builds discipline and all that. And uh, on the other side are people who are saying this is inhumane, um, it's not moral, and we get the Factory Act of 1833 which limits child labor, child labor um, and the number of hours that children could work in these textile mills. But think about this, it doesn't eliminate it, it doesn't ban it, it just limits the number of hours that you can work. And you know there's a law in the books right now that says, right, isn't it age 14 or is it, is it 15? You cannot work if you're younger than 15, you cannot be employed 14 or 15? Uh, Right, so you would ask yourself, how did those laws come to be, and especially why did they pick those ages? Why 14 and not 13? You know, that kind of thing. So that's all part of the debate that happens. And I just want to say one more thing about uh, the conditions of especially textile factories, and I just want to bring it home about what the conditions would have been like with a kind of graphic example. So if you really want to know what it was like in the textile factories, go home. You guys all have washers and dryers at home, right? Put a load in the wash and wash it. Uh, especially take the blanket off the bed and wash the blanket off the bed. And then stick it in the dryer, turn on the dryer, put a lint, uh, or what do you call it, fabric softener thing in there, right? And then un take that, that hose that comes out the back, take the little filter that's off of it and put it up to your mouth and breathe for 50 minutes while your laundry dries. That would have been what it was like working in these textile factories. There was that much debris flying around in the air that you would have breathed in normally. The same with coal mines, the coal dust itself giving rise to the disease called black lung. It's, it's that graphic and so these are some of the problems that are emerging in a non-regulated industrial revolution which it was in the very beginning. Okay, so we come down to the very end here. Was the Industrial Revolution more beneficial or harmful? We started off with that question. And then I want you to take these down as well. I, again, I'll get this whole PowerPoint or keynote up for you this afternoon so that you can download it and look at the images again. Um, but one of the questions that we want to go into when we see the Oliver Twist clip uh, is what did I gain from this BBC clip? This is again not the musical. This is the multi-part series called Oliver Twist. This is the hard stuff. They don't turn it into any kind of happy musical where everybody sings about what it's like to be poor uh, or to be an orphan. Um, this was the good stuff. And also um, you're gonna see a clip from a film called Distant Voices 
um, having to do with the development of electricity and eventually of communications. Um, and what? Uh, no, what? No. No, it wouldn't be because it's, it's this in between right there. It goes on the outside. Are you talking about where the punctuation goes? No, dude, I'm correct on this. No, I didn't know. Yeah, I know. Okay, so what did, what did I gain from Burke's Connections film Distant Voices? Inventions in agriculture and the emergent uh, proto-markets, the first markets in the Middle Ages. Okay, so problem, problem, conditions of labor, solution. Here you are, my little factory of workers. I'm making you breathe lots of textile dust all day long. You're my little factory of workers. I step outside the door and go to lunch. What are you going to do? Solution. What are you going to do? Nothing. Oh, no, you're not going to do nothing. You don't like the conditions that you're working in in here. It's hot. It's nasty. You're breathing nasty. What are you going to do? No, maybe. That's a question to consider because that's the Luddite question. Realistically, what are you going to do? You're going to go out inside and breathe, possibly, but I won't let you go outside. I lock the doors after I leave. What are you going to do? You're going to make a call to your union representative. You're going to call that person Steve, and you're going to say, we're not being treated very well. And Steve is going to come and say, well, all of you people, if you don't like the way you're treated, you all have to walk out and go on strike. And you say, oh boy, am I going to go on strike? First problem with striking, lost wages. Second problem with striking, I might get fired. Benefit of striking, I can't work without you and I can't make money without you, so what am I going to do? I'm going to negotiate with you. So maybe I'll put some filter in somewhere. I'll pipe in air conditioning. No, I'm not going to shorten your working hours. You're still going to work 16 hours a day, but I'll make your conditions better. Fair enough? Mm, I don't know. What's fair to you? Are you going to keep pushing until I finally say, ah, oh, forget it. I don't need you people. There's eight other people outside the door that I can hire who'd be happy to take the conditions and take the job. See this thing that happens back and forth? It gets very dicey, and it happens all the time. So what we see is the beginning of the labor trade union movement in which people begin to band together and to negotiate with their employers for better conditions and better um, wages. This is a political cartoon that re relates to that. We get and begin to negotiate for conditions and pay, and later even benefits and other kinds of things, like a pension. If I work for you, Bianca, my whole life, if I work 30 years for you in your factory, shouldn't you pay for my retirement since I made so much money for you? Those are the kinds of questions that people were beginning to ask. So we get people like the Chartists, who are political reformers, and what they wanted was the government to step in and to begin to regulate the business environment and protect you and you and you and you from me, the employer. So here's the question then. Who is the better regulator of the business environment? The negotiation between businessman and his labor or the government? Who's more effective in doing that? We're going to think about this as we move forward. 
because it's, an, it's a just absolutely critical question in this process. Okay? How do you get to better working conditions? And in that process, should the government play a role and to what extent should the government play a role in protecting workers in the business place? Or should they step out altogether and just let it happen on its own? Okay, so the chartists are, are, are people who adopt a charter and they say the government should step in and protect us. So eventually, um, there are, you start to see the development of, of conventions of labor organizations and you get the textile workers over here and the coal miners over here and the uh, cotton workers over here and the, the sewing machine people over here and they're all talking together and they all have individual and you have women over here and men over here and all these advocates and all that and wow, all of a sudden the conversation is all about labor. Okay? And in the end, you'll start to see what emerges out of this is the idea that in politics, having a vote is having a say. Having a vote is having a say. And I'm going to vote for you because you want to protect me in the workplace. And if you don't want to protect me in the workplace, I won't vote for you. But I have no power in this process unless I have the vote. So you start to see the emergence of a suffrage movement, suffrage meaning the vote, that will eventually cross over into the United States and would eventually lead to you guys getting the vote in 1919, which is an astonishingly long time for you to wait to get the vote, but that's a different story. You'll deal with that next year in U.S. history. Yeah. Having a vote is having a say what becomes the new... Becomes the new sort of way of thinking for labor. Labor agitates for the right to vote because the right to vote gives you the right to uh, have a say in who represents you and whether that person who represents you is pro-labor or pro-business. Okay? Then, of course, we get to the people that we're going to focus on, which are the Luddites. We're going to look at them specifically. Okay? So this is a, actually a reward poster for people they want, this is a reward poster posted so that you might turn in somebody that you know who's a Luddite. Uh, and uh, what this tells you is this is evidence that in fact the Luddites were quite active and they were in fact breaking these frames, these water frames that had replaced them as humans. These were machines that were now capable of doing this kind of work at a much higher rate and the Luddites reacted violently against this because their whole way of life was threatened. And you guys are going to jump headfirst into this issue and really think it through about what it means to, to, to protect yourself in a new capitalist environment uh, where it appears uh, that the employer has all the cards. Um, not to worry too much about this particular event, but you might just take note of this image. I almost could have thrown this up there in your DBQ. Uh, but the famous Peterloo massacre is when the government um, you guys all go on strike, right? You don't like me, so you walk out of here and you go out and you sit down on the lawn out there. And in sitting out on the lawn, you refuse to come back in here and work. And uh, what do I do? I appeal to the government and the government calls out the police and they come out on their horses and they rush the horses, charge over to the great lawn and trample all of you people. Good. I don't need you anyway. I can hire eight other people out there. The Peterloo massacre. Workers protesting for their rights, 
run down by the police. Okay, so all these kinds of events begin to happen. So in the end, as we come, this, this will be the end, as we come down to the end, we see that society is changing. It's not only going from agricultural to urban city industrial, but it's also beginning to divide between this new middle class. Look at these people. They look like you in here. Pretty comfy. Dog here all nicely asleep. Girl writing something, playing with the dog, having tea, conversing about whatever. And the new working class person who in many ways was supporting the lifestyle of the middle class, but he's certainly making these products. The china that was on the table, that's one of the great new products that comes out is Wedgwood China. Everybody had to have it because it was what the queen ate off of. And uh, that's one of the stamps that you saw on the DBQs you were looking through. Josiah Wedgwood. Hanako, uh, what was her last name? Hanak Hanako what? I forgot what her last name was. Anyway, she was related to Josiah Wedgwood. She could trace her line all the way back up to the Wedgwood people. Um, but what you start to see is a split between the working class and the middle class or the upper wealthy class. And it begins to look a little bit like we're back in the Middle Ages between those who are very rich at the top and the triangle in which the working class is down below. And you have to wonder uh, how the working class was going to feel about this over the long haul. It's reflected in the housing, so your middle class housing here, working class tenements over here, people in crowded conditions, awful sanitary conditions, um, here obviously in very good conditions you start to see the world of the rich and the poor. In, uh, uh, on PBS, back when I was a kid, the blockbuster big first series that came out, a PBS series was like 27 parts long, or it went on for years and years. It was called Upstairs, Downstairs. The rich people who live upstairs and the servants who live downstairs and the very uneasy relationship between the two. Um, my family watched that religiously every Sunday when it came on. Okay, so we see a transportation revolution. We see a change in what we call social uh, mobility. So the higher up uh, you lived, except for the attic at the top, the attic wasn't the good place, but the higher up you lived, uh, the better off you were. In other words, you could rise up in the world. Um, that's very true for me. Every time I get on the elevator, I live in a, in a building, uh, Alawai Skyrise, that's 36 floors high, and I live on the 20th, so I'm kind of right in the middle, typical for me, for my wife and I. And every time I get on the elevator with somebody who pushes PH, penthouse, I always look at that person, uh, I've never done it in eight years, I've never done it, I always wanted to go, how come you're living up there at the top? What have you done to live in the penthouse? And what is it like up there in the penthouse? What are you looking at? I mean, why am I on the 20th floor and you're in the penthouse? I really want to ask. I don't know what would happen. But what is it about being up at the top up there? All you got to do is go down to the uh, beach walk. The Donald Trump Tower is almost finished down there. There's, I think, 700 units in that building. Each one of those went for about $2 million, and they were snatched up within a couple hours. Are you kidding me? So why, 
There's 700 families in Hawaii who could snatch up a $2 million condo in Waikiki in a Trump Tower in a couple hours. Wow, that's unbelievable to me. Have you seen that building? It's quite a building right there by at the end of Beachwalk by Fort DeRussi at the very end there. Okay, so you see what the penthouse looks at the top. Okay, so in the end, of course, we're going to end up with some new economic theories. We have Adam Smith, and Adam Smith brings to us the open market. And what regulates the open market is price. If you don't like the price, Bianca, you won't buy it. If you don't like the price, Elise, you won't buy it. Sam, if you like the price, you'll buy it. The ultimate piece of communication in the marketplace is the price. It tells you everything. So you walk in the door, or today, go up to snack sales. You're going to find out that the muffins are going to go up to a buck fifty. We've been, or buck twenty-five. We've been underselling them. But you know what? You're going to buy them anyway because they're big and because you really like them a lot. At what point would that message become one that you wouldn't accept? Two dollars? I don't know. You might still buy. There might be people out there. Two fifty? No. Market would die. Price tells you everything in the marketplace. And you decide everything on price. This thing, mm, $1,100, ooh, ouch, but I'll go for it. Take it up to 2000 no dice. I'm not going to go. Mm, you're constantly dealing with price all day long. And what Adam Smith said is price is the invisible hand. It's the hand that regulates the marketplace. And it allocates goods between you and you and you and you and you. If you can't afford it, Sam, and Cynthia, you can, then you get it and you don't. That's just the way it goes. That's the open market. Now, if I step in and say, no, 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 mm, we have to split it in half and you have to be able to afford it and you have to be able to afford it too, we don't have an open market anymore. So if I set the price at a cap, so if I say muffins must be at a dollar and they can't go up, then the invisible hand is no longer working. Are we going to keep, we juniors, are we going to keep pushing the price of these products up? Absolutely. We're going to go as far as possible on this until you guys stop buying, and then we'll, that's where we know we'll have to be. And if that upsets you, well, then you live in a free market. Okay? Adam Smith. On the other hand, we have Karl Marx, the great man who brings you communism. So imagine this, my friends. You all work at Cold Stone Creamery. Isn't it a lovely place to work? You scoop somebody's ice cream, you put it up on the counter, you ring it up in the cash register, they put 50 cents in a jar, and you have to sing for them. What the hell kind of place is that? Right? So imagine this. What Karl Marx said is, at some point, all of you people are going to wake up, for God's sakes. You're going to wake up and figure out that the guy who owns Cold Stone Creamery is making money hand over fist. And what is he paying you? Minimum wage. What is he making you do? Sing for your tips. So if you walk in the door one day with Karl Marx's book, Das Kapital, the Communist Manifesto tucked under your arm, and you go into the back of Cold Stone while the rest of you are all out there busily scooping ice cream, and you sit down on a crate and start reading, and your boss comes up to you and says, hey, you're supposed to be up there at the counter. Get up there at the counter. And you hold up Marx's book and you go, Ah, kick off. I'm labor and you're stealing my wages in the form of profits. To heck with you. 
what do you think would happen to you? You'd get fired so fast it would make your head spin. Why? Because he doesn't want you going around going, psst, hey, your wages are being stolen in the form of profits. Psst, hey, you're getting worked to death. And why are you singing? Hey, why are you working for so little? Hey, why are you working for so little? That's the last thing that guy wants, right? So what Karl Marx said is that labor is going to wake up at some point and realize that as you work for minimum wage and your guy, your employer makes a ton of money, he's stealing your profits from you because you own the profit, not him. It's your labor that produces it. Now this is a very seductive idea now. I, I advise you, if you want to keep your job, don't walk in with a copy of his book under your arm. Okay? And also don't walk home tonight with a copy of Das Kapital and show it to your parents and say, I will not do chores anymore until you give me 10 bucks an hour. That might be trouble as well too. Okay? But you get the idea of what Marx was picking up on. He's picking up on the discontent of workers. And his idea was that ultimately you're going to revolt and you're going to take the factory away from me. What are you going to do to me? You will kill me. You will, literally, because that's the only way to get rid of me. Or you will sh strip me of my managerial rank and all of that, put me in chains, make me wait for a while, and then make me work like the rest of you, and then we'll all share the business together. And you guys raise your hands and go, no, 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 that's un-American. We don't do that in America. Because in America, you can rise as high as you want to go. It doesn't matter how much you step on people on the way, right? Price is everything. And if Sam can't get something because she can't afford it, well, too bad. That's tough. If, well, anyway, you know where I'm going with that, okay? All right, Karl Marx. Okay, and then Wait, we... Did he come up with the whole communism? Yes, so Karl Marx leads to communism, but that's a whole other story that we, we don't want to go into. Okay. So, was there a reaction against the Industrial Revolution? Yes. And it came from artists, and we're talking about this in our blog now. Awesome start to that discussion, by the way. And what the Romantics said was, the world is becoming a machine. React against it. Go back and begin to look at the uncontrolled nature. Look and listen to how the birds sing. Look at how the trees sway. Look at the peasant out in the field. We're becoming obsessed with technology, obsessed with the machine and all of that. This is how the romantic movement begins. So it's really a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. And uh, it's important. It's an important reaction. It's still going on today. And, and you might look at Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, as perhaps a romantic in his manifesto that he put out that, that lambasted capitalism as one of the worst things that's ever happened to mankind, which is why he was putting pipe bombs in those college professors' uh, mailboxes because they were teaching the greatness and the wonder of the Industrial Revolution. You can see the romantic in him and you'll find it in poetry and everything else that you study. Have you guys read any Shelley in poetry? No? You haven't read any Shelley, Byron, any of those guys? Okay, so those are all the romantic poets. All right, in the visual arts, you begin to see portraits of real people, not great portraits of Louis XIV. Now the artist begins to look at the real person, 
and begins to portray the real person. And we've got a real conversation going on our blog about this. Okay? It's, a, it's a portrait of compassion. It's a portrait of humanity. It's a portrait of a woman and her daughter and, and uh, probably her daughter's child or maybe her child and her son there um, going home after a day at work in a, in a train. Um, it takes all the glamour out of the train ride. There's nothing glamorous about this or a trolley ride or whatever it is. The third class carriage in the back of the bus and so on and so forth. So you've got a real interesting thing happening here. And in the visual arts, you start to see this sort of romantic look at what used to be um, photorealism and the impressionists are also a reaction as well. That I'm not going to paint it as I see it, I'm going to paint it as I feel it because the machine is taking all my feeling away from me. Okay? In literature, we would get Oliver Twist. And we're going to see a clip from the BBC version of that. This is that dramatic moment where Oliver is saying, may I have some more? And the overseer is screaming at him, more, more. And you'll see the drama dramatization of that uh, shortly. So Charles Dickens is a key figure in that respect. Okay? So, that's it. Yes, thank God. We've reached the end. Was the Industrial Revolution more beneficial or harmful? I think, and I put a fairly dramatic uh, close on this one. Let's see how it goes away. Mm -hmm.